sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 49 of You Don't Have to Yell, currently being recorded remotely from Florida where the sun is shining, the water is warm, and the COVID is spiking. Don't worry, I've got plenty of hydroxychloroquine. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and last week we spoke with Christian Anoha, who is running to be Republican nominee for a district heavily gerrymandered in favor of the Democratic incumbent Frank Pallone. And this week, I asked Helen Kiokas, lead organizer for Fair Districts New Jersey, to come on and discuss how bad the state of gerrymandering is in New Jersey. Turns out, it's pretty terrible. Now, Fair Districts New Jersey is currently seeking an amendment to the state's constitution to add more fairness and transparency to the process of drawing state legislative districts. And today... We're going to learn about how this initiative is fairly popular with voters and why that doesn't really matter at all. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. Could you start off by introducing yourself and and what you do? I, my name is Helen Kiokas and I work for the League of Women Voters of New Jersey. Um, my main focus with the League is our redistricting reform campaign, Fair Districts New Jersey. So that is a campaign that the League in New Jersey launched about two and a half years ago, although um, all 50 states have some redistricting reform campaign at, at some level going on. So it is it has been a focus of our national organization, the League of Women Voters of the U.S. Um, so in New Jersey, what we're trying to do is work towards implementing a new redistricting process that is more transparent, inclusive, fairer, and that really puts the public's voice at the forefront and prioritizes public input along with census data to draw new district maps um, that that to represent the people for the next decade. To give people an idea of the current state, what does the redistricting process in New Jersey look like right now? New Jersey has two separate processes. So most states, uh, it's a responsibility of the legislature. So whoever, whichever power party is in power basically controls the entire process in that state. Uh, New Jersey amended their constitution in the 60s to change the way the lines are drawn. So it was changed in the 60s, then again in the 90s for the congressional redistricting process. And our campaign at the moment is focusing on the state level legislative redistricting process. Um, Our congressional process does need reform as well, uh, but we're focusing on the state process. Okay. Okay. Understood. Yeah. And I, uh, as an aside, you know, obviously I've had a chance to acquaint myself with the New Jersey, uh, congressional map and our last guest, uh, was, is currently running as the 
uh, potentially to be the Republican candidate for New Jersey's sixth district, um, which has this really interesting balloon animal shape. Uh, so I could see potentially where that might be a target. Um, now, obviously, like I think a lot of the conversation around just redistricting and, and gerrymandering in general really kind of focuses on the federal level. And it's important in shaping government, but a lot of people don't really think a lot about the state level. I don't think anyway. And why why is your organization chose to focus on that, or why why is that so important to voters? Right, most people when they he, when they hear the term gerrymandering, they think about the federal districts because of what has been in the news, and also which cases have been brought up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so we're focusing on the state level because in New Jersey, we have odd year legislative races. So after the census data comes in, our first race, along with Virginia, happens in 2021. For other states, they have their next race is 2022, so they have a bit more time. Um, so one of the reasons is simply because that process will start first and that timeline is so much tighter. So we need to address it first. But also we have 40 state districts in New Jersey. And from these districts, we elect one state senator and two members of the lower house of the, of the assembly. And these are the lawmakers who are writing the bills and putting forward the policies and passing the laws that really impact us the most in our day-to-day lives. I mean, the term all politics is local is, is very, uh, is very true. Um, especially if you think about right now with the coronavirus pandemic and what each state needs, every state is doing things differently. Every state is passing different policies, um, the unemployment benefits that people are getting, testing sites, being able to have access to a COVID-19 test, um, it, a lot of social services and the safety net, healthcare related, you know, do we have a, a state-based exchange for people who don't have healthcare through their employer to be able to purchase it? Um, so all of these are decisions that are made by our state level officials. And if the districts, if the district map from which they're elected is drawn in a way that is not transparent, not open to the public, not fair, and basically reinforces, not reinforces, if the map protects incumbents in a way where we as as voters, as citizens, as constituents, as New Jersey residents are not able to hold these elected officials accountable and are not able to exert the pressure over them that we should be able to in a, in a healthy democracy. Um, if we're not able to do that, then the issues that we care about the most won't be heard. Um, so, so that's why not the congressional process is also a very important one, but we have this unique process in New Jersey for the state level line drawing that we believe 
really needs to be addressed if we are going to have, uh, if we're going to uphold the principle of equal and fair representation and make sure that communities in every part of the state are able to have a voice in our democratic systems and are able to hold their elected officials accountable. It is so interesting that you bring that up because number one, one of the first things I thought of when you were talking about uh, local policy was the pan- was the current pandemic and how if you just watch the news, you see that different states are responding differently and seeing vastly different reactions. Um, but the interesting thing, and I want to just clarify this for the people listening and get your maybe get your feedback on it too, is that when we see news, very often what we are looking at is local policy through a national lens. So I think a lot of times people make the mistake of looking at the situation in Florida, for example, or looking at the situation in Texas or Arizona, any of the places seeing spikes, and they blame the president or they blame the the folks in Washington. And and I think that what I'm hearing from you and the reality of it is a lot of that is really done at the state level and is really a, a an outcome of how folks vote and participate at the state level. Is that Am I hearing you right or am I am I off there? Yeah, and I I'm not going to say that our state elected officials do this, but um, maybe some of them find cover because the tension is always national and because unfortunately um, just not just in New Jersey but across the country uh, when people are surveyed, you know, do you know your state representatives? Do you know who your governor is? Um, the knowledge in that civic education is is lacking, unfortunately. Um, so, so perhaps they take cover under the lack of knowledge and the way that the in the news um, information is presented sometimes in a way that makes it seem like a lot of the issues a state might be facing um, all leads down this path that leads to this one location in Washington, D.C. That's super interesting. That's super interesting. And I think the the point I want to drive home for the folks listening specifically is that your local elections and your local participation is as important, if not more important than that ballot you cast every two to four years uh, for your congressional representative or uh, the president or your senator at the federal level. I don't know if I'm infringing on the message of the League of Women Voters or not, you tell me, but I just, I feel like it's very important that people understand that those town elections, those state elections, they really should know about because that's really going to impact them on the ground. Is that fair? That's fair. And, and the voter turnout rates, uh, when, when we have state level elections only not tied to a federal election, because that's what happens when we have elections that are in odd years, uh, the, the voter turnout has always been so much lower in those odd years. People are not turning out the way they do turn out when there is, um, uh, a federal federal race at the top of the ballot. I know you you spend a lot of time talking with folks across the state uh, about the need for reform, and and we've already 
maybe clarified the fact that the level of interest at the state level tends to be lower than the federal now or the level of consciousness. So what what kind of response do you get from people when you when you talk about what you're doing and you talk about why that's important? So we've been traveling across the state um, for over two years now, holding presentations, not just with our local volunteers. We have a, a large network of local league chapters and a volunteer network. Um, so we, it, we haven't just been presenting to those groups, but to anyone who wants to set up an organization, um, to anyone who wants to set up a presentation or anyone, all of the events that we hold, the educational events are always open to the public. And I always go into specifically how we draw the lines in New Jersey. Not so the audience doesn't just understand what redistricting and gerrymandering is, um, but so they understand New Jersey's unique process and how the decisions are made in our state. And the response I get all the time is I never knew what this was, I had no idea that this process existed this way, and what can we do about it? So even people who would would describe themselves as extremely civically engaged, extremely knowledgeable, don't have the nuts and bolts information about how New Jersey actually draws the lines. And I think that's another reason that the commission that is formed to draw the lines can also get away with a lot more uh, because again, they're, they're using the, the lack of information that the public has as, as a cover to do their work. Um, so, so the two things that I hear consistently are, I never knew how much of an issue this was. I never knew this process was actually so flawed. And then how can we change it? What can we do in New Jersey? That's so, that's cool. That's, I want to, I want to touch on something there in a second, but two things I'd like to know is, you know, so when, when you speak to people then, well, I guess, number one, you know, what does that process look like? And maybe what are the things that are the most shocking to voters mm-hmm. when you present them? So if a voter is looking for information, more information about how New Jersey draws the line, they might find words like independent or bipartisan attached to the New Jersey process, which one would think, oh, okay, that's actually an improvement, right? That's progress. We don't have the same system where one party can steamroll another party and dominate the process and shut voters out the way we're seeing in the news in these other states where these gerrymandered maps that don't really reflect um, the partisan breakdown of the population uh, are getting sent to the Supreme Court, are being challenged all the way up to the highest court. So people may be left with the impression that because New Jersey has a unique process, that that means it's better. But we've identified a number of shortcomings with the process. The the state party leaders, two individuals who are selected 
by other party members are the two individuals who each get to pick five people to serve on the redistrict on the legislative redistricting commission, which we call the apportionment commission in New Jersey. So a 10 person body is put together consisting of five Democrats, five people selected by the democratic party chair and five people selected by the Republican party chair. And in the past, these individuals have been either sitting legislators or other county party leaders or campaign operatives or staffers, um, legislative leaders, staff. So they've always been individuals in the inner circle of New Jersey politics. And the intention of the new process that New Jersey put in place in the in the 60s was to have a, a bipartisan process. But that's not really happening because each party basically, each party's team basically draws its own map. And there's nothing bipartisan about that. There's no communication or cooperation or compromises being made over a map. The maps are not being drafted together by this 10 person team. There's one, there, there are a set of maps being drafted by a democratic team and a set of maps being drafted by a Republican team. And both of them are looking to draft a map that will give their party the most seats in the legislature and that will protect the current elected officials in their party. So two main objectives are how do we keep the seats we have now safe and how do we flip more seats from one color to another, from red to blue or from blue to red? And, and we don't believe that that's what redistricting should be. So another uh, issue with our process is that all of this is outlined in our state constitution. There are so few standards outlined in the constitution that the commissioners have to follow, which is why they're allowed to create maps that focus on protecting incumbents and uh, expanding the number of seats they can win in the legislature because there are no checks against gerrymandering written in our constitution. Um, there's no requirement for a public hearing at all in the legislative redistricting process. They basically are um, held to keeping districts contiguous and compact, which is up for debate how much that happens. They have to, they have to obviously follow the, the U.S. Constitution and the concept of equal population. So they have to draw the districts with, um, to, the, to the best extent possible, equal populations. They can't violate the Voting Rights Act, so they cannot racially gerrymander, which means they, they cannot create districts that dilute the voting strength of racial or language minorities. So New Jersey is a very diverse community. Upholding the principles of the Voting Rights Act is, is important. Uh, but other than that, there's no, again, no requirement for public input. 
no additional line drawing standards that guide them to create a map that truly reflects how New Jersey residents want to be represented or that keeps similar communities of interest who have shared um, social or economic interests together in order to be able to, to advocate for the policies that they care about at the state level. Um, so it's not having clear line drawing standards is an issue. And we give complete discretion to an 11th member who's appointed at the, towards the end of the process to basically come in and pick one map. So because the two teams won't reach agreement on a map, five votes will go to one map and five votes will go to another map. An 11th member is appointed by the Chief Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court to come in and decide which map uh, will, will reign for the next decade. And this tiebreaker has complete discretion to determine what the priorities will be. And the last time the tiebreaker believed that continuity of representation was an extremely important concept and that incumbents should be protected because creating a map in which people's districts were changed too much or in which districts were drawn in a way that uh, incumbents might be more likely to lose their seat this political science professor from Rutgers University thought that that would be extremely disruptive to communities. So he was looking for a map that created the best incumbent protection plan. And he was able to do that, to set that, pr that priority, because our constitution doesn't really lay out any guidelines that that tiebreaker needs to follow uh, so there's too much power in the hands, first of the partisan teams, but then there's way too much power in the hands of this one individual who then comes in and makes the final decision to give us the map again that's going to be in place for 10 years. So just to clarify this for the folks listening, effectively the process is you have two groups of people, five and five, picked by the the party elders or the 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 picked by the party so mm -hmm. um ideally these are you know or or if i'm thinking strategically as a let's say a, a republican or democrat official in new jersey i'm going to pick the folks who are going to guard my seat and guard the seats of my allies um they go and draw the map without a ton of discretion as to what they can and can't do uh they never reach an agreement and then the Supreme Court justice picks someone at their discretion who then at their discretion goes in and decides which map looks better to them. Is that that's, a good summary or is yeah, that? That's, that's a good summary. And, and who, did, who, I mean, obviously this doesn't happen every year, but is there any trend as to who the Supreme Court, the, the chief justice picks or, or no, does it just kind of change with the decade? <sighs> 
Something different happened 10 years ago in that the chief justice did ask both teens to submit a list of names. And there was one person, only one person who was named by both teens. And, and that was a political science professor, Alan Rosenthal from Rutgers University. So the, the chief justice in, the, in, in this situation was, um, I guess, being a, a bit more democratic with the selection in, in putting it out there for, you know, a call for, for nominations from the, from the teams to see who, who they had in common. Um, it has been consistently a professor from a university, either Rutgers or Princeton. Yeah, it it it's it all sounds kind of like an episode of Top Chef or something like that, where you've <laughs> got this like gr- this team of people feverishly working on their maps, and then this guy comes in and effectively. I, I mean, it's it's maybe a little more thoughtful than a coin toss, but uh, but doesn't seem by much. So yeah, I guess if we want to. Um build upon your analogy. Top chef. Yeah. The, the dish that the judges picked, does the community want to eat that? Yes. You know, like we, you know, we might not know what that is, what that dish is. It might not be a culturally relevant dish to yes. whatever community um, we're, we're in. Helen, if you can make my top chef analogy live on, I will be forever in your debt. So now, so we've got, again, the, the Top Chef contest is over and the judge picks uh, the dish that he or she feels is most appetizing. What are some of the negative impacts that follow? So that's, there's, there's no additional vote. The final map, once the tiebreaker has been appointed, the final map needs six votes. So if the tiebreaker chooses the Democratic map or the Republican map, that's one vote. And then the five-person team is also going to vote for that map. So there are the six votes needed. The map then takes effect. Um, There have been court challenges in the past to maps, but they have not gone anywhere recently. So the map that the tiebreaker has chosen has been the map that takes effect. Uh, The last time this happened, nearly 100% of incumbents got to keep their seat and and were reelected. So when we have this system that just continues to cement, pour more cement on these seats, right? To, so the people can can further cement their power. When our elected officials feel like nothing can be done to um to jeopardize their position or, or if if they feel so secure in their seat that that their reelection is never ever a concern and the public can't hold people accountable we find ourselves in this really unhealthy undemocratic cycle in which Voter apathy continues to rise. Voter frustration continues to rise. Voter turnout continues to drop. And our elected officials continue to ignore the will of the people. So if if the public is not 
taking up this space in democracy. And if the public, if voters are not driving policy conversations and are not the ones who are influencing legislation, who are able to effectively push their elected leaders to address the the policy issues that they care about, then there's there's a space there left open for big money interests, special interests, and other groups to kind of take over and be the drivers of the conversations. Um, so the, the laws that are made or the laws that are not made don't reflect public sentiment. And two examples I'll give are the legalization of recreational marijuana and the implementation of a slightly higher tax on millionaires, which both are very popular concepts among the people, both poll very high, but our legislature has not been able to, or they haven't put forward um, these these issues. They haven't put forward these proposals. So instead of passing uh, laws related to recreational marijuana use and legalization, uh, instead they end up, they, they kicked it to the voters. So we're going to have a ballot question November 2020 related to the legalization of marijuana. But that's something that the, the public has, has said across the board, bipartisan um, voices have said, this is something we want in New Jersey, but it hasn't gotten done. And same thing with a millionaire's tax. The public believes that the tax structure in New Jersey should be fairer. And people who make a lot more than the average middle-class or lower income residents should have to pay a little bit more of a percentage in income tax. But that's not something that's being put forward either. Um, so there's a mismatch between what the public wants to see happen and what actually does happen. Hey, friend. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. And unlike every other episode, I actually have two simple simple, simple things to ask of you this week. Um, first off is the one I always ask, which is if you like what you hear, share YDHTY with the folks you know. It's simple to do right now by clicking this three dot thingy in the upper right hand corner of your screen. I think that's how it works on my phone. There's plenty of YDHTY to go around, so don't be stingy with it. Second part is something that I realized today, which is that about every 75 years or so, the country falls apart. And if you take a look at the distance from the Revolution to the Civil War, the Civil War to the Great Depression, it's roughly about 75 years, give or take about five, five to ten. Now, if we add a 75-year period to 1945, we are at 2020 meaning that we are due for another similar and great disruption. And as with all things, disruptions can be very bad, but they also allow you an opportunity to build things stronger and better. And that's where I need your help. Right now, the level of dissatisfaction with America's two major parties are higher than they've ever been before. 
One poll I saw indicated only 38% of Americans think it does a good job representing their interests. And we all have an opportunity to expand the electoral field, not for two parties, but for three, four, five, however many you need to truly represent the diversity of thought out there. Now to do that, we really need to get together here. And to do that, I need to know who you are. So come to YDHTY.com today and fill out the contact us form at the bottom of the homepage. Let me know a little bit about yourself and let's start figuring out how we can really make things happen across the country. Really looking forward to hearing from you. And with that, back to the show. You know, I think what elected officials generally are good at or the job they're sent to do is to write laws, is to enact legislation. And, uh, and that's one of their talents. And, and if they're doing it the right way, they're being responsive to the, to the will of the voters. That's kind of how democracy should be working. Um, and it seems to me from what you're telling me, even with this issue of them kicking very popular issues to ballot initiatives, it sounds like they're so beholden by the donor class and by the uh, party itself that they can't even make popular decisions that might anger the people who hold the keys to the castle. And so as a result, instead of, let's say, legislating against it, they kick it to the voters and then that allows them to deflect blame to the people who are really keeping them in power. Is that right. a fair, is that too cynical of an assessment or is that? Uh, no, I, I think that's, I think that's what has been happening and not, not, not just in New Jersey, but in, um, in, in states where the redistricting process creates safe seats and cements people, cements people's power. That's what we see. We see, um, in, Pennsylvania is a great example when it comes to redistricting reform. I mean, redistricting reform and fair processes to draw maps, again, regardless of political party, polls very highly across all states. It's something people want. People want their democracy to be fair. People want their votes to count. Uh, In Pennsylvania, their redistricting campaign, which... um, has been around many years, they had county after county resolution and support. They have fair districts, chapters all over the state, um, thousands of volunteers, a bill to change their process or a constitutional amendment proposal that had a ton of sponsors on, on both sides, but it didn't move. Ultimately, it, it didn't move through the legislature. Um, so that's an example of where we have people who, too few people with too much power in very safe seats who can derail an agenda, a very popular agenda, or, um, or be gatekeepers against progress. Yeah, yeah, and... You know, one thing I want to hit on too, and I think this probably dovetails well with what we're talking about, is is you'd mentioned that there was there were some recent developments with the ballot design of New Jersey as well, and that seems to be you know another way. F- again, those in power try to kind of calcify 
their political positions. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was a report that was uh, issued this week by a professor at Rutgers University, who's um, also part of a group called the Good Government Coalition of New Jersey. Um, and the report, th- this woman, Julia Sass Rubin, examined ballot designs in all 50 states and identified New Jersey as having one of the stranger layouts uh, because the the parties, the party leaders have used ballot design and people's placement on the ballot, again, as a way to keep incumbents safe, um, to make sure that the, the party-backed candidates do win based on their placement on the ballot. So we might have the endorsed candidates all bracketed together in an A column, and then we might have eight blank columns and then names kind of scattered all over or people who might appear to be bracketed together who are actually running against each other. Uh, each other. So it's designed in a way to confuse voters, to make voters even miss names on the ballot when it's when it's extended so wide in order to have so many blank columns inserted in between names, um, someone might not even know, oh, hey, look, there's like a column G all the way to the right over there. And who's this person? And uh-huh. why was this person placed over here? So they designed the ballot in a way, um, again, it goes back to this concept of keeping seats safe so that uh keeping seats safe so that the the agendas of a certain few individuals are the ones that are end up being prioritized um, when these people get into office and um, in in the press conference about this report that was released uh, our executive director of the League of women voters called it gerrymandering of the ballot so we have the actual gerrymandering of our of our districts and gerrymandering it's it's any time that the process is manipulated for a group or for an individual's political gain. So it's the manipulation of this process. Um, So we have it, we have it being done to our district lines. We have it being done to our ballot and it's another way that makes voters feel like, What's the point? Why am I even voting? Does my vote even matter? I mean, they've got these systems on lock and um, their systems are basically impenetrable. And, and I can see how in a state like New Jersey, where we don't have the direct initiative process, so voters cannot rise up and say, you know what, enough is enough. We are going to amend the constitution to change this, to change that. We're going to amend the constitution to make our redistricting process fairer. And we're going to circulate a petition and we're going to get our own question on the ballot. Mm -hmm. That's what California did and other states that have boldly amended their process to make it one that is truly independent in which actual voters are applying for seats to draw the line. So we have regular people with ordinary jobs um, who are not beholden 
to the donor class or to party leaders or party bosses. We have regular people drawing the maps based on the census data. How have um, you know how the how has the population shifted in certain areas, and then based on public input to really hear from the people what they want their district to look like and what other communities they want to be grouped with for representational purposes. So in New Jersey, we can't get our own question on the ballot. The voters cannot bypass the legislature. So I understand that it, it seems like there's nothing that can be done, but I have an organizing background and you people don't get into this line of work if we don't truly believe that people, the people's power can be harnessed in a way to really affect change and to put pressure to, to change things through, through people power and through mobilizing communities and exerting pressure over their elected officials and, um, and, and making them put forward the changes that they want to see. It's, it's not easy. It is, you know, it could take a long time, but we, all we have to do is look at what's happening right now nationally with the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil unrest and this great reckoning that we're finding ourselves in in the country because of years and years and years and years and years of racial injustices. Uh, and in just a matter of weeks, we are now seeing city councils and other prominent people putting forward proposals to redirect funding from police departments into social services or to start examining uh, disbanding the police. And I mean, a year ago, I think no one would have thought that was possible, but that's what we're seeing now is, is all coming from public pressure, from people power, from people coming together and finally saying no more. And, um, that just shows that we might not have the direct initiative process. We might not have, um, California had governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was this huge advocate for fair maps. We might not have that same kind of prominent, uh, champion in the state to, to, to quote terminate gerrymandering. Or maybe you should cut that part out. You know, uh, we yeah. don't have someone pr- um, prominent in the state. I might actually keep it. I don't know, but I'll, I'll let you be the judge there. <laughs> we don't have someone prominent in the state like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's um, making it their mission to, to change the redistricting process. But we'll always have people will always have the ability. Uh, people will always have the ability to come together and to organize uh, and launch their own campaign and and put pressure on people in power to to make them feel like this is no longer an issue that we can continue to ignore. And this is no longer a process that we can continue to manipulate. Mm -hmm. As you were talking, there's, there's an analogy I thought of, and I'm, I'm feeling kind of cocky after my top chef victory. So I'm going to give it a go. Um, 
which is project, you know, project runway project. You know what? It's, it's actually not that int- It's okay. not as interesting. It's, it's, I'm going to say top chef's probably going to be a, this is going to be kind of a B squad. This is going to be the sequel, mm-hmm. which is never as good as the first one. Um, but you know, what I was thinking about is like when you design si- skyscrapers, you know, architects always have skyscrapers wobble a bit and you don't notice it, but there's a little bit of give. And, and, and the main mm-hmm. reason is because of course, you know, if wind blows hard enough, uh, the whole building could collapse. And so you have to allow that skyscraper to, you have to allow the floors to shift a little bit um, in order to remain standing. And, and, and I think from what you're, you know, the thing I, I think I'd like to drive home for the folks listening is that when you don't have a system that is responsive to the will of the people, eventually the wind blows hard enough and the whole thing cracks. And obviously we are not, an autocracy here in the U.S. We're still very much a democracy, um, but I think we should all be very fearful of any system in place that is designed to give so, or to make someone immune um, from the will of the people and from the the, the from popular votes. And, and to your point, um, it was I had to take a look, but back in May uh, we had uh, episode forty-two. For those interested, we had Dan Vicuña from Common Cause. Um, who has been working on federal redistricting efforts around the country. And he actually mentioned that the places where they had the easiest time or the most success, I should say, were ballot initiative states where folks could actually vote uh, to to for a redistricting committee. Uh, as, and like you said, bypass the legislator, uh, a legislature, I should say. That's obviously not the process in New Jersey. So what do you what do you have to do to get this changed? So ultimately, we we will need a constitutional amendment to create a better system with enforceable standards. And that will require um, that will require legislative support. So that's the long term goal is is to find those supporters and and to get our legislature to agree to put the question on the ballot for us so Mm -hmm. that voters can can then make the decision to amend the constitution. Um, so we've identified some other ways through legislation, mm-hmm. um, but that those would be piecemeal fixes, but still some improvements. Um, so for example, the fact that public hearings are not required in our legislative redistricting process, the commission has does not have to hold a single public hearing or listen to a single voter when they are drawing the lines, they can get away with completely ignoring the people. Um, that's a huge problem. So can we, through legislation, require public hearings? Mm-hmm. Can we, through legislation, make the process more transparent through uh, the sunshine laws that currently exist? Um, so th- there are some pieces that we might be able to, to get through legislation, some improvements. And then it's the, the strategy after that, or, or not after that, um, to it complementary to that, um, is to continue to give the public the tools and resources they need to not just understand the process and what it is, but to also draw their own maps. So to give the map making software to make it available to the public and to have people all over the state drawing 
and submitting what they think their map should look like. And that would be the first time something like that has happened in New Jersey. Um, so it's it's much harder to to ignore the public when you have lots and lots and lots of drafts of maps being sent to you and um, and lots of people participating. So through mobilizing our supporters and our league members um, and other people who want to play more of a role in redistricting more people, more members of the public to provide them with the map making tools and the instructional guides and the, the space to draw their own maps and share with the commission what they think their area should look like, which different towns they think they should be uh, grouped with in a district, what makes the most sense. In um, public hearings were held 10 years ago and there was uh, someone who spoke at, the, at one of the hearings in South Jersey who asked, why do you keep grouping our area with Atlantic City? We're a we are a rural area. We are a bunch of farmers out here. We have other concerns, other issues, other needs, yet we are in the same district as Atlantic City, a casino town, urban area, tourist destination, a city that generates a lot of money for the state of New Jersey in the uh, casino revenues and taxes um, that we don't feel like we are paid attention to by our elected officials because we're grouped with Atlantic City. So that's an example of, um, of people I think if that person had the software and the tools mm -hmm. to draw um, to draw a map, they wouldn't have put themselves with Atlantic City. That area was still drawn with Atlantic City um, and is still uh, attached to Atlantic City. So that feedback wasn't taken into consideration. Um, but just giving people the tools so that we can help empower individuals to play a larger role in the redistricting process, whether our elected officials or the redistricting commissioners want it or not. Mm. You have got my mind moving with that concept. Um, first off, before I, I get into another rant, um, I just want to state or want to clarify, and that's want to clarify a term for you, which is one of the things we hear a lot on the redistricting episodes is communities of interest. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that, uh, again, farmers should be grouped with farmers so they can elect people who are, uh, are going to vote in for policies that affect them. And that's effectively what you talk about when you talk about grouping certain types of people together. So, for example, not grouping a small group of farmers with a bigger group of people from Atlantic City who might dilute the rural vote. Is that correct? Or right, or not splitting up if there's um, a certain area where they a certain area that shares interest let's let's minimize how many times let's either keep them whole or let's minimize the number of times that they're broken up broken up into different districts if you're if you're split then it's it is harder to it's not impossible but it's much much harder to get organized and to um and it's that many more 
legislators that you have to put pressure on, um, it's it's harder for the people to come together when they're split among many districts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's keeping them together, not just so the one issue they might care about gets prioritized, but it's just about people just feeling like they do have a voice and that their elected official listens and that they um, can influence policymaking in their area by working with their elected official, that that constituent and legislator relationship is, is open and healthy and lines of communication are open um, to just to create districts in a way that make people feel like they are heard. And if there are groups that have specific set of issues in that area, environmental issues, um, transportation issues, economic issues, let's keep them together so that their voice can be amplified at the state house. So with the whole redistricting process being in the hands of the legislature and with there being no ballot initiative in New Jersey and with voters generally obsessed with national elections over state level ones, um, how does this impact the ability for voters to really pressure legislators to change and and pressure legislators to issue these reforms. Because if they're in safe districts, I can imagine it's much, much more difficult to get them to make changes like this. So, so we have, we have these groups, these newly engaged groups that understand civic engagement is not just going into a voting booth once every four years and voting for president. And the next legislative races will be in 2021, following this huge 2020 election. So the people who are motivated to see change and who are getting more active in electoral politics and in campaigns for the first time, volunteering for campaigns, um, for the first time paying attention to and researching candidates uh, down the ballot, that momentum will carry into the New Jersey 2021 legislative races because that energy is not just going to go away um, coming off of November 2020. Regardless of what happens November 2020, those those people and that energy and that that civic engagement um, that has sparked in people and that has created um, so many new regional and local groups, uh, that will, I see that energy and that momentum propelling into 2021 and the 2021 races and redistricting being the next thing that the groups will pivot to after the November 2020 election. Um, So even though if you look at past trends in that um, voting turnout dips significantly when there's not a a federal election at the top of the ballot, um, I do 
see that starting to change with everything that's going on in our country. Uh, and people know about redistricting in a way that they had not before. And then on top of all that, the technology that exists now that didn't exist in the last redistricting cycle um, for, for again, what I was talking about before, giving people more power to have a say over the map. So it's just, it's a redistricting is going to happen under in a, in a completely different environment in 2021. We have more people civically engaged. We have technology readily accessible. We have um, this process and this term more well known because of the Supreme Court cases and because of some other things that happened here in New Jersey over the last year and a half. We've seen redistricting in the headlines several times because of um, a problematic proposal that our legislature was trying to pass in the fall and winter of 2018. There was an, uh, an, a, a fight over one of the party chairs over who that person would be because that person would ultimately select the five commissioners. Um, so we've been hearing this term more. We've been hearing the term gerrymandering more. We understand what's at stake more, I think, than we have in the past. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling hopeful with, with 2021. Even the, even if we don't have, you know, even without a constitutional amendment, things will be different. Well, you've got me fired up. I'll tell you that. I think, so with that, you know, you've got a lot of folks who are civically engaged. I know from the last episode that there is at least one person in New Jersey who really sees the value in working at the community level. And I'm sure there's a lot more. So for the folks listening who want to participate, where can they go and what can they do? Our website, again, we are an initiative of the League of Women Voters, but our coalition consists of many other statewide advocacy groups, and we are organized under the Fair Districts New Jersey umbrella. So our website is fairdistricts.org. Mm-hmm. And on our website, um, we have a lot of information about the campaign, about the current process, and it's also where we are going to um, eventually incorporate map making software on our website for people to be able, um, at no cost, to learn more about the process and to how to create their own maps and then actually create their own maps. And we also have several ways to take action on our Fair Districts New Jersey website, um, whether that's signing a petition reviewing our letter to the editor template and submitting a letter to your local paper, um, signing up to volunteer for the campaign or people who are able to support the campaign financially through a donation to help sustain our work. Um, There are many ways people can take action on the Fair Districts NJ site. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And uh, next, I'm going to, once I get, a project runway analogy. I'm going to have to have you back on. Um, Maybe that'll be the the like the presentation of the citizen drawn maps. There we go. There we go. We could hope. We could hope. Mm-hmm.
So, there you go. The state of drawing legislative districts in New Jersey is such that elected officials worry more about upsetting the party power structure that could gerrymander them out of existence than they are about angering their constituents. After all, if the voters don't like you in New Jersey, you can just get new ones. Now, this presents a problem for folks like the guest from last week, Christian Anoha. As to have an impact in politics, first you need to work your way through a party structure that more often than not is beholden to some special interests, and typically you end up serving those special interests in the process. Now, there's a ray of hope here, as all of us have more power to exert pressure at the local level than we do in federal government. And our government's really designed to be ruled from the bottom up, and We simply cede power when we don't participate at the grassroots. So if you're in New Jersey and you're interested in being part of the solution, you can go to fairdistrictsnj.org. If you're not in New Jersey, both Common Cause and the League of Women Voters have chapters in other states where you can take part in improving the redistricting process. And I'll have links to both organizations and a write-up of today's episode on ydhty.com. Now, next week, I've got Professor Bernie Thomas from Valdosta State University, and he joins me to discuss how two-party bias is baked into our system and how a 5% shift in the popular vote in America could accidentally result in one-party rule and an erosion of democracy as we know it. The dude drops bombs, and you will not want to miss this one, per usual. Music by Kfellertak, YDHDY is produced in an equally gerrymandered North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.